turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. We're going to take a look this morning at a subject of prophecy which most people, believer and unbeliever alike, have a fascination about. We are at the point in Scripture where we have the most detailed description of the coming Antichrist. And it seems fitting since we're coming up on Election Tuesday and we're being inundated with politicians and campaign slogans and campaign promises and mudslinging and name-calling and finger-pointing that this chapter introduces us to the ultimate politician. He'll be the next world ruler. He'll be the people's choice. He will win by a landslide. He'll be considered the greatest ruler of all time. He'll be the answer to the world's questions, the solution to the world's problems, the fulfillment of the world's dreams. He'll be the greatest politician ever, and it may comfort you to know that he'll also be the last. Scripture uses many terms for him. Daniel refers to him as the little horn, the prince that is to come, the willful king, Paul refers to him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as the man of sin, the son of perdition, the lawless one. John refers to him in 1 John 2.18 as the Antichrist. In fact, that's the only reference in Scripture to him as the Antichrist. There he says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. In the book of Revelation, he's always referred to as the beast. And he is the ultimate expression of Satan's strategy. Throughout history, we can see that for every Abel, there's been a Cain. For every Jerusalem, there's been a Babylon. For every Moses, there have been the magicians of Egypt. For every John, there's been a Judas. And this will be Satan's ultimate counterfeit, the counterfeit of Christ. And we discover six things about him in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 13. We're going to find out his nationality, his kingdom, his power, his influence, his enemy, and his end. First of all, his nationality. Verse 1, and he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. Now, the pronoun there at the beginning of verse 1 uh, can read either he or I. And in the Greek, it's just a matter of a letter being there or not being there. It's in some manuscripts. It's not in the other. It really makes no difference uh, whether he's talking about he or I. If it's I, it's John standing on the seashore. If it's he, it refers back to chapter 12, and it's a reference to the dragon, to Satan. Uh, and mo since most of the manuscripts have it that way, that's the way I take it. That he's talking about Satan standing on the seashore as this beast rises out of the sea. And we're going to see a real connection between Satan, the dragon, and the Antichrist, this beast. But notice where he comes from. He comes from the sea. Now, physically, geographically, the sea would be a reference to the sea in proximity to Israel, which is the Mediterranean Sea, indicating perhaps that this beast will come from the Mediterranean area around the Mediterranean Sea. Now, if you took your map out and looked around the Mediterranean Sea, you would find that the countries surrounding the Mediterranean Sea are countries like Spain, France, Italy, 
Greece, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, northern Africa. And if you went back to an older map and you looked at a map of the old Roman Empire, you would find that those are the same countries that, that make up the, the majority of the old Roman Empire that surround the Mediterranean Sea. Now file that away because I think that's rather fascinating. This beast is going to rise out of the sea. The closest sea in proximity to Israel is the Mediterranean Sea, and those countries surrounding it are those countries that made up the majority of the old Roman Empire. But if he's speaking symbolically here, the sea in Scripture always refers to the Gentile nations. In fact, if you just turn over a few pages in your Bible to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, we're told here of, a, of an account of a, of a harlot who sits on many waters, and the many waters are defined for us in verse 15 of chapter 17, and we get an understanding of symbolism. It says, And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So the waters represent the many Gentile nations. And uh, so as we see this beast arising out of the sea, uh, he will arise kind of the way we use that term, the sea of humanity. He will arise out of the sea representing the Gentile nations and perhaps more specifically those around the Mediterranean Sea. Now, let's see if we can corroborate that from another passage. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. very important passage in our understanding of prophecy, Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, talking again about Daniel's 70 weeks. And here in verse 26, it says, Then after the 62 weeks, which is the completion of the 69 weeks, which leaves us one week left, he says, After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, that's the death of Christ, and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city, and the sanctuary. After the 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off. He'll be put to death. And then it says the people from whom the prince is going to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, who destroyed the city and the sanctuary in 70 AD? Well, the Romans did. And so he says the people who destroy the city and the sanctuary, from those same people will come the prince to come, the Antichrist. He's going to, be, he's going to come from the Roman people, the Roman Empire. And so that kind of corroborates what we saw in Revelation. He comes from the Mediterranean Sea, that area, constituting the old Roman Empire, and he is going to be the prince to come. He's going to come from those same people. And so the first thing we learn about Antichrist is his nationality. He will arise from the Gentile nations, specifically those associated with the old Roman Empire. Uh, in fact, if you come back to Revelation chapter 13, it talks about this first beast coming out of the sea, and then we're going to see that he also has a running mate. We're going to find that out next week. Down in verse 11, he says, And I saw another sea coming out of the earth. I have one, one, one beast comes out of the sea, representing the Gentile nations. The other beast comes out of the land. And the land in Scripture always refers to Israel. And so I think what we have here is we have the first beast, the Antichrist, comes out of the Gentile nations. The second beast, his running mate, sort of his vice president, if you like, is going to possibly be from the Jewish nation. We'll talk about that next week.
But anyway, we find out the first thing about him, we find out that he'll come from the Gentile nations constituting the old Roman Empire. Secondly, we find out about his kingdom. Uh, notice verse 1 again. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now, you say, that's pretty strange language. I agree. That's pretty strange language. But what we have here is really the language of prophecy. When we go back to the Old Testament and we read the language of prophecy in the Old Testament, we understand here what's going on. This is not to be taken literally here, that he comes out looking like this. There's, there's meaning behind these words. Now, if you go back in prophecy, and we won't take the time to do it this morning, but uh, let me just remind you of some prophecy in the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And... Uh, that's what he dreamed of. Had a dream, and he, and he called in his magicians and so forth, and he said, I want you to tell me what the dream is. And they said, fine. Or what the dream means. And they said, fine, tell us what it was. And he said, no, I want you to tell me what the dream was and what it means. And they said, we can't do that. Well, Daniel showed up and, and saved the day because Daniel said, here's your dream. You dreamed about a man, and he had a gold head. He had a silver chest and arms. He had a bronze belly and thighs. He had iron legs, and he had feet made of iron and clay. And then you saw this statue standing there, and out of, out of the sky came a, a, a stone cut out without hands, and it hit this statue in the feet and crushed the entire statue, and then this stone became a hum, huge mountain and filled the whole earth. That was the dream. And then Daniel says, here's what the dream means. And what it was was a tracing of world empires. And he said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the gold head. You're the head of gold. That's the Babylonian nation. And after you, there's going to come a nation made of silver, and that's going to be the Medo-Persian empire. And if you follow history, you see the next, next world ruling empire was the Medes and the Persians, sort of two sides to it, so there's two arms. The next was Greece, the bronze. And the next was the Roman Empire, the Iron Legs. And then the indication is that down here at the bottom, the final kingdom is going to be sort of a, a revival of that Roman Empire with ten toes, ten parts to it. And then out of nowhere comes a stone cut out without hands. In other words, it's not man-made. It's God-made. It's God's kingdom, and it's going to crush this statue. It's going to hit it right here, and it's going to crush the entire statue and it's going to become a big mountain, and Daniel says that means that God is going to raise his kingdom. It's going to be a mountain that fills the whole earth, and his kingdom will fill the earth. Then we come to Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel has a vision. And it's similar, but it's a different terminology. And there he's standing, and he sees four beasts come out of the sea. Sound familiar? The first beast is a lion. It represents Babylon. The second beast is a bear. It's raised up on one side. It's the Medo-Persian empire, stronger on the Persian side. The third is a leopard, very swift, represents Greece. 
and Alexander the Great, who swiftly took the world. And then there's a fourth beast that comes up, and it's not defined as any animal. It's simply described. It has sort of the qualities of the first three, but it's different. It's extremely strong. It has iron teeth. It tramples with its feet, and it has ten horns. And then Daniel goes on to define it in Daniel chapter 7. You have to read it on your own, but he says the ten horns are ten kings. So again, we end up with a, with a sort of a revival of the Roman Empire, and it's got ten horns representing ten kings. And in Daniel chapter 7, it says three of those horns are replaced by another horn, which represents the Antichrist. He will sort of throw off three of those kings and rise to power and take control of that ten-king confederacy of the Roman Empire. In fact, it tells us in Daniel chapter 7 that he will reign for three and a half years and then he'll be destroyed. Now, come to Revelation chapter 13. And when we read about this beast coming out of the sea, we recognize him or this beast to be the equivalent of Daniel's fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, if you look at verse 2, it says, and the beast which I saw was like a leopard and like a bear and like a lion. And those are the three beasts mentioned in Daniel chapter 7. So he's like the first three, but he's different. He is Daniel's fourth beast, which represents the Roman Empire. And so he embodies all the best attributes of the previous world empires, but he's different in his empire. You say, well, why are there seven heads on this beast? Well, hang on. Keep your finger in, in Revelation chapter 13 and turn over to Revelation chapter 17. If you'll bear with me, you'll understand this. Revelation chapter 17 gives us a, a, a definition of some of this terminology so we, that we can incorporate it. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So the seven heads are seven mountains. Some have associated that with the seven hills of Rome. But notice verse 10. And the seven heads are seven kings... Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. So this beast has seven heads, and he says these seven heads represent seven kings. Five have fallen, five have come and gone, one is, and one is still to come. Now what's he referring to here? Well, without going into a whole lot of speculation on what other people say. Let me just tell you what I think. I think he's talking here about seven world empires that will have existed in the history of man when man's day is finished. Seven world empires, or more specifically, seven ruling countries that have kept Israel subject to them. And if you go back in time, you'll find that the first was Egypt. The second was Assyria. The third was Babylon. The fourth was the Medo-Persian Empire. The fifth was Greece. The sixth was the Roman Empire. So as John writes, he says, I see that the, the seven heads are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. He writes in 95 AD. Rome is still in dominance over the world and in dominance over Israel. So he says five of these kings have fallen. One still is, still in control, and one is to come. 
And so as we see this beast, he's got seven heads, but they're really not seven heads at the same time. They're sort of seven heads in succession. Five have fallen, one exists, and one is still to come. There's a king to come. Who is that? We'll look in chapter 17 and verse 11. He says, And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. So he says the beast is really an eighth, but he's, he's not really the eighth. He's, he's really the seventh. He comes out of the seventh kingdom. And then he says, verse 11, or 12, And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Of these kings, world-ruling kings, he says five have fallen. We see that from history. One is Rome at the present time when John wrote, and one is still to come. And that one to come is going to be a ten-king confederacy out of which will rise this Antichrist, and he will take control. And it tells us in verse 13, these, speaking of the ten kings, have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. They're going to start out as a ten-king confederacy, but they are going to turn over their crowns to the Antichrist. And that's why when we read of the description of him in Revelation chapter 13, it says he's wearing ten crowns because they give him their authority. And not only that, but he will also uh, extend his borders because as we see in chapter 13 and verse 7, at the end it says, and he had authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation given to him. And so he, uh, the second thing we learn about Antichrist is his kingdom. It will start out as a ten-king confederacy, a revival of the old Roman Empire. So what you can look for is sort of a United States of Europe with ten parts. And we're not far from that today. We'll, we'll go into that when we get to chapter 17. But a, a, a ten-part revival of the old Roman Empire is where it'll start out, and then these countries will give their allegiance and power and authority over to him, uh, culminating in really the world as a whole giving him that same power and authority. Okay, come back to chapter 13 if you're not there. I hope I didn't totally lose you on that. Uh, but uh, once, you, once you get a little grasp of the symbolism in prophecy, it's not quite so overwhelming. Uh, so I, I want to lead you through that. Third thing we learn about the Antichrist is his power. And we see that in verses 2 and 3. Notice the end of verse 2. It says, And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now Satan, the one Christ referred to in John 16, 11, as the ruler of this world, is the power behind the beast. And he gives him his power and his throne, and his authority. Now, I think the implication here goes deeper than just a transaction because Satan is a spirit being. And if he's going to operate in the physical realm, he has to work through the person and passions of men. And everything we can discern about demons and spirit beings in, in Scripture is that they want to embody bodies. And I think what you have here is the equivalent of what you find in Luke 22, 3, where it says, and Satan entered into Judas. I think what you have here is Satan 
embodying this individual. And one of the reasons I say that is if you go back to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3, it says, And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Here you see Satan described as a dragon. He's got the horns, he's got the heads, he's got all the things. The same as the Antichrist. In other words, they share the same qualities. And so what I think you have here is not only Satan giving his power to this beast, but actually empowering and embodying him. And so he's not just a demon-possessed individual, he is a Satan-possessed individual. He is a Satan-embodied person. Let me show you another passage just to illustrate that. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. There are two mysteries described in Scripture that are quite a contrast. One is in 1 Timothy 3.16. It says, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That was a mystery, the way God became man. There's a second mystery. It's quite a contrast to that. It's here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7. It says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, there's a mystery of godliness. That's God manifest in the flesh. There's also a mystery of lawlessness, a mystery of sin. And it says it's already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And we said in our earlier studies, that's the Holy Spirit. So there's a mystery of lawlessness. Notice verse 8. When the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, then that lawless one, reference to the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. There's a mystery of godliness. God manifests in the flesh. There's also a mystery of sin. And it's going to have its full expression when we see Satan, in essence, manifest in the flesh in this individual that we run into in Revelation chapter 13. And so in Revelation chapter 13, we saw in chapter 12 and verse 9 that Satan will be cast down to the earth at the midpoint of the tribulation. Verse 12 says, woe to the earth. And now we see Satan having been cast down to the earth, in essence, entering into this individual, and his goal is to supersede the kingdom of Christ by setting up a kingdom himself, working through this individual to set up a worldwide kingdom apart from Christ and apart from God. And so the power that Antichrist has comes from Satan. I think that's exemplified in verse 3. It says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. Now, one of his heads appears to have been slain, it has a fatal wound, and it's healed. Now, what is this? Well, some teachers see this as a reference to the kingdom because throughout this passage, you'll find it, you kind of have the beast represented as a person, and then at other times, you kind of see him represented as the kingdom as a whole. And so some people see in this uh, a reference to the kingdom, and they refer this to the political death of the Roman Empire which will be revised and uh, restored once again. And so they say this is the Roman Empire. It, it died when the Roman Empire fell, 
and then it's going to be sort of revived back to life and restored again. Other teachers see in this a reference to the man, that he will receive a fatal wound and be restored. That what you have here is Satan sort of simulating a resurrection because the wording is very interesting here. It says he, I saw one of the heads as, as if it had been slain. It doesn't say that he was actually slain. It says he was as if he had been slain and then he is restored once again. Now, I lean toward that second interpretation that it's a reference actually to this individual. The first one's true. There's going to be a revival of the Roman Empire. But I lean toward this second interpretation, and that is that I think that this man is actually going to have a fatal wound and be restored in, in what is going to appear at least like a resurrection. And the reason I say that is, number one, because Satan is the master of counterfeit. And it just makes sense that he would want to counterfeit the resurrection of Christ. But secondly, I say that because of the reaction to this. And the reaction we see in the next point, his influence, verses 3 and 4, and then we'll pick up verse 8. Notice verse 3. He says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now, I can't imagine the whole world being amazed at the revival of the Roman Empire. I mean, that doesn't just give me a whole lot of tingles. You know, I, I can't imagine, oh, I can't believe it, let's follow after. I, I can't imagine that. But if an individual conquers death and everybody sees that, I can imagine this kind of reaction. But, you know, it's kind of ironic because a world that has been denying the resurrection of Christ for centuries is now going to accept the fact that here is a man who has conquered death. That's kind of sad. A world that rejects Christ, writes that off as ridiculous, is going to respond to a resurrection, only it's going to be a resurrection that'll be a simulated resurrection empowered by Satan in the tribulation period. And so the whole world will be amazed. The whole world will follow after him. Uh, kings of nations will give him their thrones. Men will idolize him at this period of time. In fact, not only that, but notice verse 4. It says, and they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? They'll worship Satan and they'll worship the beast. And that's really the same thing because they're going to be one and the same. And at this point in the tribulation, there will be outright worldwide Satan worship. You say, well, that's hard to imagine that uh, the men will actually be out and out worshiping Satan. You know, it really shouldn't surprise us that much because the world in reality worships Satan today anyway. So in the tribulation, they'll just be admitting it. They're already worshiping Satan. Sometimes they're doing it blindly. They don't know exactly what they're doing. In that day, they're just going to admit what they've already been doing. And that is worshiping him. It's going to be the, the religion of the world is going to be the worship of Satan. And he's going to be demonstrating his power through this individual who will be the world ruler of that day. And then slide down to verse 8. And it says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. 
And this is the point at which we, we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 where it says, He takes His seat in the temple of God, displaying Himself to be God. This Antichrist will actually sit in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. And the world will bow down and worship Him. There's one exception, though, the end of verse 8. It says, Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. That's kind of refreshing. The whole world's going to fall down and worship Him except those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's kind of exciting to see once again that God always has His remnant. And even when the world is, is worshiping this man and exalting this man, there will be those who will stand apart from that. And those are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so the fourth thing we learn about Antichrist is his influence. The world, in fact, all the world, is going to be amazed. They're going to follow, and they are going to worship him. And then we learn a fifth thing about him, and that is his enemy, verses 5 to 7. Notice verse 5. And there was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, he's going to be a talker. He's going to be a big mouth. And his message is going to be blasphemy against God. Daniel 11.36 says of him that he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. It'll kind of resemble our election campaigns a little bit. Only he won't be campaigning against some other man. He's going to be campaigning against God. And so he's going to say these monstrous blasphemies against God. And his term in office will be 42 months, three and a half years. And then notice verse 6. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God. God is his, the one he blasphemes, but he, he sort of directs that blasphemy three ways. It says to blaspheme his name, the name of God, and his tabernacle. You say, what is his tabernacle? Well, he tells us. That is, those who dwell in heaven. What is God's tabernacle? It's the church. We are the temple of God. And we at this point in time will be where? In heaven. Because we have been raptured out of this world. So he's going to blaspheme God. He's going to direct his blasphemy at his name and at his tabernacle, which are his people, his, the church. So he can't get to us because we got snagged in the, in the rapture. So he's going to be angry anyway, and he's going to direct blasphemy at us. And then there's a third group, and we see that group in verse 7. And it says it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And so his blasphemy is directed at the name of God, at the people of God in heaven, but he also has some saints of God on the earth to attack. And he not only blasphemes them, but he makes war with them and it says he overcame them. Those are the tribulation saints. Those are the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he goes after them. Uh, this world ruler is going to actually go and make war against those who are believers in the Lord Jesus in that day. And he says he will overcome them. You say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that he will overcome them? Well, look in chapter 15 and verse 2. When it says he overcomes the saints, it's only talking about a physical, temporal overcoming. 
Because in chapter 15 and verse 2, I'd like you to notice this. And it says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. Great verse. I saw, standing on another sea, a sea in heaven, a sea of glass, I saw those who had come off, how? Victorious from the beast. These are the same people. The, the, the beast overcame them in a physical sense, but they won the victory in a spiritual sense. They were victorious over the beast as they stand in heaven. And so the fifth thing we learn about the Antichrist is his enemy. He's, his enemy is God and, and God's saints. And then a sixth thing we learn about the Antichrist is his end. And that's in verses 9 and 10. Notice verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. And that's a phrase we read earlier in the book of Revelation, specifically in chapters 2 and 3, and it always said, if anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But now that little phrase is not on here, because this is no longer a message to the churches because they're gone. This is a message to the world. And he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. What's the message? Verse 10, if anyone is destined for captivity... To captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. What's the message? You reap what you sow. A kingdom that is built on blood will end in destruction. And that will be the end of Antichrist's kingdom. And so he says, when you, when you uh, build a kingdom on the basis of the sword, killing with the sword, you will be killed yourself. You know, I couldn't help thinking of the time. You remember in the garden when Judas and the soldiers came to arrest the Lord Jesus and the time when Peter got real brave and he pulled out his sword and he cut off Malchus's ear. He, he had all the soldiers in front of him and he aimed at a servant standing there and he cut off his ear. Now, I, I'm sure he wasn't trying to cut off his ear. He couldn't have been that good. Uh, he was probably trying to split his head open, but he got his ear. Uh, you know, I can't imagine him saying, got your ear, I only got about 500 left and I'll have you guys. You know, he, he went after him, but he picked sort of the lowest guy on the totem pole and he cut his ear off. And of course, you remember the account, Jesus picked up the ear and put it back on. But he said to Peter this, interesting statement, he said to Peter, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword will perish with the sword. Same statement. Jesus said, I've got a kingdom to build, but I'm not going to build my kingdom by the sword. I'm going to build it a different way. A few hours later, he's standing before Pilate. Jesus says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting. But my kingdom is not of this world. Great statement. He doesn't have a kingdom that's built by force. He has a rather unique kingdom. It's built another way. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know how you get into God's kingdom? You're spiritually bankrupt. You're poor in spirit. That's a unique kingdom. You don't take up a sword and you conquer. You come to the end of yourself in order to enter his kingdom. And then a few verses later he said, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. That's pretty unique stuff. In God's kingdom, you enter it by being spiritually bankrupt. You come to the end of yourself and say, Lord, I don't have anything to offer to you. And you enter his kingdom. 
and you enter it gently, not with a sword. You inherit this earth by the gentleness that's reflected in the Lord Jesus. And that's why I think we read here in chapter 13 and verse 10 at the end, the weapons of victory. He says, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Here are the things on which God's kingdom is built. Faith and patience. And those are the things that his saints possess. They don't fight back with the sword at this time either. They become martyrs. Theirs is to show faith and patience. And so we discovered some things about the Antichrist in this chapter. His nationality, he's out of the Gentile nations. His kingdom, a ten-king European confederacy. His power comes from Satan. His influence, he's going to be a world ruler, and he's going to be the world's god. His enemy, God and his saints, and his end will be death. You know, there are two kingdoms today. There is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, and the kingdom of Satan. And we still have that opportunity to choose today. We don't take the kingdom by force. We take the kingdom by being poor in spirit, by coming to the end of our own self and our own abilities and submitting ourselves in faith and patience to the Lord Jesus, who, uh, as Paul said in Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's an exciting truth. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word today. And as we read about this coming world ruler, which will woo and win the favor of the world, and will rise to power by the sword, Lord, we're thankful that you have offered us a better way. Uh, you have provided us the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that we might be forgiven and cleansed and changed and transformed. And you offer us a kingdom of light. And one day, Lord Jesus, you're going to come back as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I pray, Lord, that we might learn today to be people who use the weapons of faith and patience to be victorious over Satan even today. And we thank you for the grace that allows us to have come out of this kingdom of darkness that we read about today and in the, into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of your dear Son. And we give him all the glory for it in his worthy name. Amen.